Anybody want to ask a question, make a comment? Oh, it's over. In the back. It's in the back there. Um, wondering if you could say a little bit more about the relationship between uh, self-differentiation as a leader and different organizational styles in institutions. That's very abstract or very broad. Could you narrow it some way? Uh, if you're... Um, if you're working at self-differentiation as a leader, does it matter what the how you're organized in your local institution? Well, you know, um, in the Episcopal Church, for example, Arlen Rutledge has created a uh, a taxonomy of congregations depending on the size of them, and showed that. Uh, there are different requirements, different depending on the size and the age. But I would say the issues of differentiated leadership are the same no matter what that is. And I presented for before his place in Chicago recently, uh, last summer, and he pretty much agreed with me. Um, I guess part of this problem is how you hear the word differentiation and self-differentiation and so on. It seems to me that no matter what the group is, Leaders are those who go first. That's what a leader is, the person who goes first. Whether it's the first person to initiate the idea of the team or the first person to go it alone. It's still, one needs leaders. Um, and that the problems of leadership, uh, of um, uh, getting a community to move together towards a goal, are pretty much the same. I guess there are differences in values. And I guess there are differences in styles, uh, in terms of what you're saying. I would, I think I'll develop this more tomorrow, but I, I have a hunch that the factors that go into leadership, as I've been describing it, leadership through self-differentiation is really the same. I don't see a difference. And, and that's based on both my being invited in to consult as well as the different people who've come to me. Um, you know, I just, as I told you, did something for the uh, executive committee uh, of the chief of naval operations. But a couple of years ago, I did something for Trappist monks. And uh, the problems are very similar. You know? Uh, I mean, you go into a, a Trappist monk seminar, seminary or a Trappist monk monastery and there's all the stuff you'd find in a street gang, you know? It's, uh, <laughs> there's the backbiting and there's the gossip and there's the cliques and there's the subversion. It's, it's, it's there. You know, and, and I remember once and one of the Trappist monks uh, said to me, you know, um, we know that even though we tried to leave the world, we brought it with us. And um, I don't think it's what they learned in the world. I think that's just the nature of relationship systems when they come together. Uh, I'll, I'll discuss this more tomorrow. I will try to put in a kind of universal biological basis for self and togetherness. But I, I, I'll, 
I'll show a way of putting that all together. I wasn't planning to do that tonight. I was wondering about the kinds of will and willfulness. I was hearing toward the end of last session you saying, hearing you say that the, there was aspects of of a will that are good and that we need to be self-differentiated. But then I was hearing earlier that there's the willfulness and how that's bad. Could you distinguish a little more between the good will and the bad will? (laughs) In a religious context, I would say a differentiated approach to salvation is I will not make my salvation dependent on the functioning of others. And that means the basis of my salvation will not be plugged into using others, and it won't be plugged into saving others. Saving others comes second. Saving yourself has to come first. And if the way you try to save yourself is through saving others, you're going to fake yourself out. I'll get into that more on the issues of empathy tomorrow. One of the things I will do tomorrow is I mentioned about the equator being an emotional boundary. I didn't have a chance to develop that greatly. What I'm going to suggest is American society today is in a regression rather than a renaissance, that we've had a regression in maturity, and that to get out of it and to think imaginatively There are three equators to be crossed. The first is going to be, which I will describe tomorrow, the focus on empathy rather than responsibility. I'm sorry, that's the second. The first is the focus on data rather than maturity. The second is the focus on empathy rather than responsibility. And the third is the focus on self as a pathological category rather than a category of health and life where self has been pathologized so I'm going to take those three ideas tomorrow and I'm going to develop them and I think I'll touch much of your questions that you've been raising I'm a school superintendent from Wisconsin and Some of the demographics that we have is we have about 420-odd superintendents in the state, of which one-third turnover have a tenure of under three years now. And that number is keeps getting uh, shorter and shorter. Uh, while we're busy self-differentiating, our contracts don't seem to keep up with our personal growth. <laughs> School board members' tenure is... your epitaph will be wonderful. (laughs) I'm I'm working on that. Probably have something something to do with that. But uh, school board members' tenure is now around two years in Wisconsin. I I was just curious whether you have any comment about some variables that may be beyond your control. you can work on yourself, but there also is that system out there that's a real real set of events, and the governor's done some things which have taken any kind of security away from leadership as a superintendent, and boards are under this anxiety and stress, so aren't staying on. Uh, I was just curious if you had any comments about that. Well, the major comment I'd have is one of the symptoms 
one of the sure signs of regressed families is that they are child-focused. That when anxiety increases, families will get more focused on their children. Not in the creative, uh, growth-producing ways we're talking about, but their anxiety will focus on a child. What I believe is happening in America today is that a lot of the anxiety is getting focused in the school systems. That children are, the, on the one hand, the natural conduits of pathology from family to, to institution. And that to the extent institutions deal with children, they are particularly vulnerable to the anxiety in society. And I think that what you just described in Wisconsin, I can show you stories from uh, Colorado, California, same thing. Um, one of the problems that I see go on in all institutions, and I hope to develop this more tomorrow too, is pathogens seem to have more stamina than the good people. The pathogenic elements in churches and synagogues and school systems and so on always seem to have more stamina. It's very hard to muster up the same willingness to stay in a fight that seems to come naturally to the pathogenic, invasive, reactive, non-ceasing people. But it isn't that they have more stamina. It's that they have less self-regulation. And so those groups... Because they are, they are driven compulsively. They often win out because they simply wear others down. And the difficult thing for rabbis, ministers, principals of schools, school superintendents, and so on, is to muster up that stick to in the other people. The other people are constantly, you know, uh, minister, rabbi, we supported you for the first three fights, but they're back again, and you know, um, this is your job, but it's not my job. I've got to take care of my business. I've got to take care of my bank. I've got to take care of my law practice and so on. But those other people never stop. They never let go. Now, interestingly, that's the story of democracies and totalitarian nations. Um, a book I would recommend to you that every minister and rabbi should read is On the Origins of War by Donald Kagan. It came out last summer. He's a professor at Yale who has evidently taught this course for 25 years. He takes World War I, World War II, the Peloponnesian War, the main one between Athens and Sparta. He takes the war between Rome and Hannibal. And what he says and tries to show is, in every one of those situations, the nations that didn't want to go to war and that had the power to stop the upstart nation kept trying to reason and appease with that group and wound up having to go to war with them anyway. And he makes the statement all through the book, the peace will not keep itself. So I guess what I would say to any superintendent of schools today is, you can't go out there naively and assume all i got to do is tell the people, here are good programs. you got to know right from the beginning that that element is out there, and they're going to be out to get you, and they're going to focus on you, and that part of the job of a school superintendent is somehow creating the kind of support in the citizenry 
that can deal with those people. Because otherwise they'll wear you down. I mean, that's just life. I can't hear that. Donald Kagan, I believe it's spelled K-A-G-A-N. I'm sorry, I don't know the publisher. Donald Kagan on the origins of war. And then what he does is to take the Cuban Missile Crisis and points out we were willing to go to war at that point. We went to DEFCON 4, our missiles were loaded, they were armed, and we were ready to go to a nuclear holocaust to prevent the continued invasiveness of the Russians, and they backed down. And the problem is getting people in any community to be willing to... They don't have to go all out, but they got to be willing to go out. It's the same thing in a marriage. I'm constantly having to say to people who are troubled in their marriages, you have to risk willing to lose the marriage to change it. Now, was this always true? I think to some extent. But I think it's more true uh, today because of the high degree of reactivity in society. And, you know, the title of the new book I'm working on is A Failure of Nerve. Um, A Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. I know you're ready to ask a question. Let me finish the sit down. (laughs) And let me go through this. Poor man has been waiting to ask a question. I'm going to see if I got it here. Um, I think I do it somewhere. Um, I left it up there. Okay. I don't know whether this will be scary or supportive, okay? But I'll read to you the first two pages in the introduction to this thing. And by the way, the title of Failure of Nerve comes from a book by Gilbert Murray 50 years ago on Greek society. And what Gilbert Murray said in that book was called Five Stages of Greek Religion. And the fourth stage is after Socrates, where he says Socrates had succeeded in disillusioning his society, had taken all the illusions away, and society was around the corner from the Renaissance. And then he said they panicked, and instead they bought new myths. And he called that chapter a failure of nerve. Anyway, here's how I'm opening this book. I believe there exists throughout America today a rampant sabotaging of leaders who try to stand tall amidst the raging anxiety storms of our time. It is a highly reactive atmosphere pervading all the institutions of our society, a regressive mood that contaminates the decision-making processes of government and corporations at the highest level and on the local level seeps down into the deliberations of neighborhood church, synagogue, hospital, library, and school boards. It is something in the air that affects the most ordinary family, no matter what its ethnic background, and its frustrating effect on leaders is the same, no matter what their gender, race, or age. It is my perception that this leadership toxic climate runs the danger of squandering a natural resource far more vital to the continued evolution of our civilization than the preservation of any part of the environment. We are polluting our own species. 
the more immediate threat to the regeneration and perhaps the survival of American civilization is internal, not external. It is our tendency to adapt to its immaturity. But to come full circle, this kind of emotional climate can only be dissipated by clear, decisive, well-defined leadership. For whenever a family is driven by demand feeding, what will also always be present is a failure of nerve among its leaders. This book is for parents and presidents. It is also for CEOs and educators, priorists and coaches, healers and generals, managers and clergy. It is about leadership in the land of the quick fix, about leadership in a society so reactive it cannot choose leaders who might calm its anxiety. It is about the need for clarity and decisiveness in a civilization that inhibits the development of leaders with clarity and decisiveness. It is for leaders who have questioned the widespread triumphing of data over maturity, technique over stamina, and empathy over personal responsibility. And it is for anyone at all who has become suspicious of the illusions of change, of the modern fashion, wherein solutions as well as symptoms burst upon us in every field of endeavor, management, healing, education, parenting, and then disappear as unexpectedly as they at first appeared, only to be supplanted by the fad of another issue or cure, and everyone back at square one. The emphasis here will be on strength, not pathology, on challenge, not comfort, on self-differentiation, not herding for togetherness. This is a difficult perspective to maintain in a seatbelt society more oriented toward safety than adventure. This book is not, therefore, for those who prefer peace to progress. It is not for those who mistake another's well-defined stand for coercion. It is not for those who fail to see how in any family or institution a perpetual concern for consensus leverages power to the extremists. And it is not for those who lack the nerve to venture out of the calm eye of good feelings and togetherness and weather the storm of protest that inevitably surrounds a leader's self-definition. Four, whether we are considering a family, a work system, or an entire nation, the resistance that sabotages a leader's initiative has less to do with the issue that ensues than with the fact that the leader took initiative. So I think what you're describing there in a school system, it's everywhere. And uh, I think um, leaders are naive about what's going on. That's why I showed you those diagrams. It ain't the same. Something has shifted in the emotional processes of our civilization, and it affects everybody. This afternoon, you said something about um, no end of um, data about pathology, but when it came to health, a half dozen or so simple um, categories would do, and then didn't mention the categories. Can you do that for us? God, I thought nobody would ever ask. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can... Um... Let me just think a minute where I have them listed in a row. Um...
Something I didn't say in regard to that diagram I opened with, the leadership. I've come to realize that if I look back over all the families that have gone into crisis, marital crisis, economic crisis, health crisis, crisis over children, whatever, what distinguished those families that survived crisis and maybe even grew as a result of the crisis from the families that disintegrated was the presence of a well-differentiated leader. I'd stake my life on that. If I look back over all the families, and if you've been in one area for 37 years like I have, you know, children whose bar mitzvahs I officiated at when I came to Washington, today are ready to be grandparents. Not parents, grandparents. They're 50. And I've watched this persistence of form through the generations, and I've watched the transmission of both pathology and strength. And some of you have heard me talk about churches and synagogues as being pills or plums. And the, the, the plums have three ministers or rabbis in a century, and the pills spit them out every other year. And I've never seen any bishop, district supervisor, placement director, whatever you call them, change a pill into a plum. These, I think, institutions institutionalize the pathology or the genius of the founding families. There's something that sticks in there. I think it's only a certain kind of leadership that can bring that change. Um, there'd be a way of going about it. Come to me, say, uh, let's say I'm the Bishop of New Orleans or something. And uh, we've got this terrible congregation down in Metairie, and uh, we, uh, it's, just, it's just horrendous. They, they eat their ministers, spit them out. What are we going to do? I'm going to look for the following kind of person to put in there, all right? I'm not going to go by their grades in ministerial school, rabbinic school, whatever. I'm not going to go by the courses they were taught. The very first thing I'm going to look for in this person is that he or she have a very healthy dose of self, by which I mean they are, they have a fairly well worked out idea of what they believe in. Now I think nobody gets there till they're 70, but if you don't start on that when you're 27, if you don't start when you're 27, you won't get there when you're 70. That they have a pretty good idea of what they live for and what they die for. Why is that crucial? I give you the quotation from Seneca, the Roman thinker. A sailor without a destination has trouble discerning a good wind from an ill wind. How do you know what to do with the storm? Do you wait it out? Do you tough it out? Do you outflank it and lose time? How do you know what to do with the storm if you don't know where you're going yourself in life? I participated down at AMFT once in a workshop where there were three of us who supervise supervisors. So we were asked all kinds of questions, and they brought us cases. And they'd bring up a case from someone who's a therapist who's trying to learn how to deal with it better. And everybody in the panel was asking these people or making suggestions for techniques that they could use with the case. And I kept asking these therapists, where do they want to be in five years? 
that I wanted to focus on the therapist's own self rather than give them an armamentarium of technique. So the very first person I'm looking for to go into this difficult congregation is somebody with a healthy dose of where they themselves are going in life. The second thing I want that person to have is a high degree of self-regulation in the face of reactivity. This is not something that can be taught easily. The capacity not to be made anxious quickly. In the uh, seminars that I have in Washington, and I will tomorrow put out some flyers on it if anybody's interested, the seminars I have in Washington are for clergy, and we have some seminars for non-clergy. The whole world, for me, is divided into clergy and non-clergy. And the non-clergy are administrators and therapists and educators and uh, sometimes a lawyer or a physician and so on. In the, the mornings are theoretical and the afternoons are clinic, but what, one afternoon of every three-day segment, everyone is asked is put into small family of origin groups. And everybody is asked to take an issue in their family of origin that they have always avoided or always been reactive to and see if they would be willing to go back into their family of origin and try to deal with that issue in a non-reactive way. It could be a secret. It could be some tense alliance. It could be some hurt. Whatever. Just start there. Our experience universally, and these programs have been going on for 10 years now, our experience universally is male or female, Jew or Christian, black or white, if that person will go and do that, they immediately become much less reactive and much less anxious in their work system. So one of the things I'd be doing as the Bishop of New Orleans with this person is I'd be putting them into a situation where they get a coach who helps them work on their reactivity in their family of origin, because I know that's going to make them far less reactive in this system. I'm going to teach this person that relationships are more important than ideas when it comes to situations like this, and that what they have to do when they get in there is first of all, become a natural part of the system. When you enter a new system, you're a graft. And it takes time for the graft to be accepted as a natural part of the system. That means in part, not getting triangled too early, or at least noticing the triangles and getting in them but not getting stuck. And then what I would do is I would say to this person, I don't know, six months down the road, after you've been in there a while, now you make a change. It doesn't matter what the change is. You could teach new courses, preach on new subjects, involve the congregation in a new thing outside the congregation in the community, or you could do something really radical like move the lectern from one end of the pulpit to the other. <laughs> something. The purpose of the initiative, of the innovation, is not to bring change. The purpose of the innovation is to bring out the reactivity. It's to bust the boil. Now, a 
assuming this person understood what they were doing, assuming that they understood that what we're trying to get here is an emotional shift, they would be fully expectant of the reactivity and not get too reactive back. I believe if a leader could go into a system and do that, let the reactivity come out and not get too reactive back, work at that, then the entire system, whether it's a family or a nation, would go through some kind of emotional shift. And then you could start moving it. See, you go to Freud. Freud, in psychoanalysis, says you begin by analyzing the resistances. He understood very simply, right from the beginning of all therapy, that to try to build new things into people, no less institutions, before you have dealt with the poison in there, before you have dealt with the reactivity in there, with the resistance in there, stuff that's been in there for generations, it will topple you, it will sabotage you, it will throw you off course. First you have to deal with the resistances. First you have to deal with the emotional processes that are in there. After you've worked with them, then maybe you have a chance of getting change. So that would be something. A paragraph to add to this. By a well-differentiated leader, I do not mean someone who autocratically tells others what to do or coercively orders them around. Though, any leader who defines him or herself clearly may be perceived that way by those who are not taking responsibility for their own emotional being and destiny. Rather, by a well-differentiated leader, I mean someone who has clarity about his or her own goals and therefore someone who is less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional processes swirling about. I mean someone who could be separate while still remaining connected. And therefore someone who can maintain a modifying, non-anxious, and sometimes challenging presence. I mean someone who can manage his or her own reactivity to the automatic reactivity of others, and therefore someone who was able to take stands at the risk of displeasing others. It is not as if some leaders can do this and some cannot. No one does this easily, but most leaders can improve their capacity. That would be a set of examples of what I mean about strength. And these are not subject to data. If you go and read the training programs that now exist for managers in all the companies in America, this is one of the biggest big businesses in America, training managers of corporations. And it's extraordinarily parallel to training therapists and training clergy, and they break down to all the same thing, but few of them bring about an emotional shift in the people they're working with. Everything I've been saying so far today, and what I'm going to say tomorrow, is the social science construction of reality gets people focused on data that may be accurate, but I believe is irrelevant to leadership.
That's where I've been coming from all day, and uh, that's what I'm going to develop more tomorrow. And tonight, what I wanted to do is show you how I would put that into a counseling or therapeutic context. Anybody else want to ask, make a comment or ask? You're all asking very good questions, and if I seem to be giving you short shrift, not enough of an answer, it's because I know where I'm going tomorrow and I'm going to develop them all, but at the same time I didn't want to avoid the questions completely. Any other one, any other person want to make? And I'm curious about <clears throat> the literature which catches the imagination of the American public. And two books that come to mind that have been quite popular in the last three years um, were The Bridges of Madison County and a new one that's out which is titled The Horse Whisperer. And in both of those novels, the adults sacrifice themselves for the for the good of the children, in part. Um, and as I compare those novels to, say, the work of Gabriel Marquez, A uh, Hundred Years of Solitude, um, and Love in the Time of Cholera, cross-cultural literature, and, and I watch the perseverance of, say, Marquez's characters, one of his characters waits 51 years to get the woman he loves. <laughs> um, and I, I just wonder if, if, well, I'll tell you if you have any parallels to literature, what's, what's your sense of... I just, in recent years, have not been reading much of other people, except that kind of material. Um, I've been reading a lot in biology and in other things, so I don't know what to say about it. But I'll uh, give you, I'll tell you what my association to it is. There was an article in the newspaper recently on the fact that it appears that drinking one drink a day will reduce the dangers of cholesterol. And this comes out of the French experience where they imbibe enormous amounts of cholesterol and don't seem to have anywhere near the heart attacks that show up or the coronary artery problems that show up in America and yet what it's known they do is drink a lot of wine. And so there seems to be mounting evidence for it. And what I'm going to say now may make some of you absolutely walk out, the, out of the room. Um, so I was discussing this with some people, because what happened was a woman from MAD, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers or something, said immediately, well, but we shouldn't start people drinking because of that. And uh, we don't want to produce more alcoholics. I don't know if they would do that or not. And I turned to this group and I said, that is about the most selfish, child-focused thing I've ever heard in my life. It's much more important to keep the fathers of children who are earning livings and are already in those committed situations alive than a few children being killed by automobiles. Okay? Now, you can't go in the face of this any more deeply. <laughs> All right? But it just seems to me, from a societal point of view, it's far more important to keep the fathers alive. And I said this at, at a, a place recently, and uh, I looked at the audience and I said, uh, I looked at the, particularly mostly women, 
And I said, isn't it more important to you to keep your husband alive than your child? And there was a kind of, uh... (laughs) Okay, so that's my answer to that one. (laughs) That's what happens in child focus. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, it's how can you lose when you're focused on itty-bitty children? I mean, how can you lose when you're poor that? Uh-uh. There are other issues in life. Yep. yep. Well, I'm going to go on with what I wanted to present to you tonight, because I'm trying to cover a lot in these two days, and I wanted to come at it from different angles. And a few of you have seen this videotape before, but I've been using it because it, it seems to capture well a lot of the things that I'm trying to teach. Now, I'll tell you something about the family, and I'll tell you something in advance about what I've been trying to do. Um, Janelle, were you going to put that microphone in front of the other one, or I can put the microphone that I have on me in front of it? You might be able to set it on the table. I can't hear you. You might be able to set it on the table in front of this one. Uh, this one on there. Okay, fine. We'll, it may take a minute after I turn it on to get the right volume and so on. Um, as I said to you earlier, when I see a couple or a family that comes in to see me, I'm primarily looking for strengths. I'm not focused on a lot of togetherness because I think the togetherness that's most valuable is the togetherness that comes out of the mutual attraction. The togetherness that comes out of self is more likely to last than the togetherness that comes because people sacrifice themselves. So that I want a togetherness that comes out of mutual respect for one another's self rather than a togetherness that comes about because one or two part, one partner or somebody else or both gave up self. Part of this is the model that appears in generation to generation, and I will uh, put that on here because it's useful as a larger picture, and it helps convey a systemic understanding of marriage. All the families on this planet have one or two parents and one or more children, all right? I guess you could have a childless couple too, but basically. So I've given these parents two children. What is true about all families on this planet is that if they have unresolved issues, if that family remains chronically anxious enough, if it regresses, it is going to have symptoms in one of three locations. One is the marital relationship where it will surface as conflict, distance, or divorce. The second is the health of one of the partners, and that can be a physical symptom or an emotional symptom. And the third is the functioning or behavior of one of the children, either toward the family or outside. Those are the three symptom locations for all families on this planet. Those efforts that do marriage counseling, that isolate number one, and only work on one, and do not understand that the emotional unit is the nuclear family, 
run the danger of simply recycling the symptom to one of the other locations. So that if a marriage counselor brags about having calmed the couple down or kept them together, I want to know what the health of those parents were and what the functioning of that child was the next five years. It is, I can teach any marriage couple in the world how to calm their marriage by focusing on a child. It will destroy the child, but it will save the marriage. And one of the most difficult things in the world, when couples come in focused on a child, is getting those parents to refocus it back on their relationship. That requires great artistry because as soon as the parents realize what you're doing, they'll quit you. But the third possibility is that one of the partners winds up giving up self and adapting in a no-self way to the relationship and develops physical or emotional symptoms. So that from my point of view, successful marriage is not whether a couple stays together. Successful marriage is not whether they fight or not. It is all marriages are successful to the extent the nuclear family is symptom-free in all three locations, and no marriage gets over 70%. In other words, one-third of the time in any nuclear family, there's something somewhere. And maybe the difference between the healthy families and the unhealthy families is they distribute it more in all three locations. In the unhealthy family, it's more likely to get stuck in one area. Now, this is a systemic way of thinking, okay? It's a very different model than what we're used to. Well, I therefore, in doing marriage counseling, want to create the kind of strength in that family that when the symptom goes away here, at number one, it's not likely to surface in number two or number three. And I think you don't do that when you solve the problem just by getting calmness and peace. This comes out of my experience. Yes, the theory is not mine, it's Murray Bowen's to begin with, but it comes out of the most, the, the logical aspect of all the families I've seen over 37 years in the Washington area, you know, four decades almost, and watching and being fooled, that's it, it is being fooled over and over again, early in the game, by the families that made it and the families that didn't make it, by the couples who made it and the couples who didn't make it. And I would say my knowledge of the social sciences was about as good as any clergy person, and it faked me out constantly in terms of judging what couples were going to make it and what families were going to do well and what kids were going to do well. I mean, a, a rabbi gets real close to children at the age of 13. Well, maybe that's too early. But you'll also see them, you know, at confirmation, 16 and 17, just like many ministers do. And I was constantly faked out, watching which kids began to fly only years later and which kids flamed out early. I was constantly faked out by the values of people. so that I have focused instead on differentiation. I will talk tomorrow about the fact that society is structured around these three 
locations. And the health systems are structured around these three locations. Is it a marital problem or is it a health problem? Is it a health problem or is it a problem in the child? And that drives clergy in particular nuts. How are you going to keep up with all the different syndromes and disorders? Well, even therapists can't. You don't have to. They'll shift. This won't shift. This is universal. And this is, uh, this is not related to error. This goes back through time. What you can say is this. All severe symptoms in families are related to lack of differentiation. All severe symptoms in families are the result of unresolved issues with family of origin. Therefore, if you're out here, therapist, minister, educator, whatever, working to promote self-differentiation in that family is a broad-spectrum antibiotic. You will be doing the most you can for that family, no matter what the symptom is. That's where I'm coming from on this. This feeds back into everything I've been saying about the focus on strength rather than pathology. And I believe the way you do that is you find a family leader. The one who is most willing to stay connected, most willing to pursue things and stay motivated, but who also, hopefully, is also least blaming. And to the extent I can find a person like that in a family, as I said earlier, I can see that person and the whole family might as well be in therapy. But I want to say the other side of that, and you're not going to want to hear it. To the extent you can't find anybody, to the extent that family is like the old Valentine sign of the three rings, and they're all caught up that way, you're limited in what you can do, no matter what your knowledge of pathology, no matter what uh, techniques, data, methodology, and so on you use. And this really shows up in family businesses, too, where the stuff leaps forward. Of course, you could see a lot of churches are family businesses close to it, particularly those in institutions where that one family has been there all along. Wow. Anyway, this is the theoretical basis behind my work with families. Now, the particular family I'm going to show you is as follows. It's a couple in their 30s, and currently they're separated. And this was done at an AMFT conference down in Dallas, where I was one of the guest experts to see uh, to interview a family in front of 500 people on closed circuit TV. So that's where this comes from. And here's a couple. They're in their mid-30s. They're separated. They have two children. They're both oldests. She has a younger sister. He has a younger brother. Neither one seems to be doing much with their life. His parents are alive. Her father is dead. He is currently living with his parents. He's jobless. He's, he's not working. And he's been doing some heavy drinking. 
He also had an affair. As near as I could tell, what happened here is, and I don't know where it originates, she decided to work on incest issues with him. This tape was done about five years ago, and people still use the word incest. I don't hear that anymore. Abuse now is the word. In all events, she had an incestuous relationship with her father, decided to go work on it. She's a school teacher. Um, as a result of that, going into an individual therapy, she started to differentiate herself. She started to get in touch with enormous anger in terms of the way of her family dealt with it, and he couldn't take her being angry. She wasn't necessarily angry at him, but he got scared when she'd get angry. And then, I think, in reaction to her differentiation, he went off and had an affair. And now he's living with his parents, and she is pursuing him. All right? What you will see me do over the course of this session is, at first, just bounce things back and forth between them. I think one of the major mistakes that's done in training clergy, particularly, to do counseling is the assumption that you can operate in a church or synagogue the same way you can operate in a therapeutic office or a pastoral counseling center. And here's what the problem is. The problem has to do with transference. The problem has to do with the fact that the patient, the uh, parishioner, the congregant, will, will transfer to you anyway, being an authority figure. But if you go and do counseling, there's more danger of that. And if you do interpretive therapy, that's the worst. One of the reasons that interpretive therapy developed, that is, telling people how they feel, well, you must be very angry when you do that, or I think you're hiding your anger, or whatever. When you start doing that with people, you encourage more transference towards you. Now, the therapist or pastoral counselor in an institution, that's fine, because the next time the family comes in, we can work on the transference. But with a minister or rabbi, the transference doesn't show up at the next session. It shows up at the budget meeting on your salary. <laughs> the transference shows up when you want to introduce a new hymn in the ritual committee. The transference shows up in a whole array of other areas. So that I think it's really important for clergy in particular not to do the kind of therapy that encourages transference. But I would do, teach everybody that anyway. Why? Because I think if you can keep the transference in the system, you can be more objective, and you're less likely to get caught up in the triangles. The more you get caught up in the triangles, the less objective you are, and the less change will occur in the family. How do you do that? By asking questions. 90% of what I do is to ask questions. As long as you're asking questions, you can't be the one giving the answers. All right? It keeps you out of that expert position. And it's remarkable how, by asking questions, you make people feel you're interested. And you are. In fact, when you're bored the next time at a party, you don't know what to do with yourself, go around asking people questions about themselves. They'll love it. And they'll think you care. 
Now, so what you will see me do mostly is ask questions and then bat it back and forth between them. Sir, you said such and such about your anger. I was wondering what you thought about that. He gives an answer. I turn to the wife. What would you say to your husband's response? Turn to the husband. What would you say to your wife's response? Back and forth. That helps them define themselves to one another. It helps them be more clear about their own thinking. Well, somebody might say, hey, they could do that back home. You're right, but they won't. They need the presence of the non-anxious catalyst to do that. Now and then, what you'll see me do is um, projective techniques. I'll draw something on the board. I'll tell a story. That's where the fables came from. And I'll do things like that to help people read themselves into it because I'm constantly concerned about what I call the resistance demons. I want to outflank them. I know that to hit resistance demons head on is to strengthen them. I'm constantly wondering, how do you outflank those demons of resistance so people will hear you? I do some outrageous things also. You'll see me say some things and ask some questions that maybe you would feel you could never do. And I don't know that I could have done it when I was a rabbi with members of my own congregation. But, but, it's at least a model for something. It's an example of something, which is how not to get stuck with these people. Let me give something away right at the beginning. This man is a tar baby. All you've got to do is grab him and you'll never let go of him. He is dependent. He is um, unhelpful. He never answers a question with much more than you asked him to begin with. And I would say within five to ten minutes of this session, I knew that he was a waste. All right? And what I did ultimately and what I do gradually through the session, I want to make sure, I, I want to make sure though, that's a hypothesis. Ten minutes in, it's only a hypothesis. All right? But I also want to bring out to each partner how the other one thinks. People love to hear what the other one has to say. So some of my questions are three corner shots. I'm asking him a question because I want her to hear it. Um, what I don't do or ever do is interpret people's feelings to them and I try to avoid getting into conflict with them. People have told me that they've watched this session and said, how did you keep yourself from shaking this man? Making, just shaking sense into him. Well, I don't know. We could go, you know, we could get into that after the session and throw it open for questions. But what I am doing constantly is saying I'm not going to get caught up in his dependent, passive-aggressive, recalcitrant games. And I would be caught in that if I tried to change him. Instead, I'm going to try to support her to be more of the kind of person that he would be attracted to. Hear that? I'm not going to make a head-on approach to him. I am going to try to get him reattracted to her 
by helping her become more of a self. That's the direction it goes in. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes me 50 minutes, I'm going to show you pretty much the whole session, and you'll see the development of it, but I want you to know what's in the back of my head all through this. I want you to have some idea of what I'm trying to do, and it's all related to everything I've been saying thus far about focusing on strength rather than weakness. Could you move this again for me? Uh, Larry, is he here? Let me see. Who's near the lights? You're near the lights. Okay, wait, wait till I get this on and make sure I've got it on. And uh, I'm going to put this over. No, it's playing through. It's playing through both. Okay. Okay, so just put that one. They mention a woman named Nisi. She's their therapist. Hi. Steve Minnick. Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Cindy. Hi. This is Ed Friedman. Okay, this would be good. That's Nisi. So she's leader. Do I just start? I can't hear you. I have to speak. Yeah. Just not. Okay. Um, okay, upstairs, what I did was get just a little bit of background on your ages and, uh, you know, your families and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, I asked Nisi what she thought was keeping you stuck most. And she said she thought it was the anger between the two of you and uh, the uh, reactivity, how quick you were to react to one another. Would you agree with that notion? I think it's been, it's it's something that puts us together and brings us Can you speak a little louder? It's it's something that keeps, we keep banging into each other over different issues. You bang into one another over different issues. Could you give an example of that? Uh, I think money issues is one area where we keep we have problems communicating with each other and, and the, uh, we don't talk about it and it reaches a certain point where it becomes an angry confrontation whereas earlier it could have been something that could have been solved. Could you spell that out a little more? What, like, what might happen? What might you say and what might she then say? Um, you know, maybe the checkbook hasn't been reconciled or, or, or watched very carefully and it reaches a point where it, it it's an absolute necessity that it be done, and because I feel put upon doing it, I'm just angry when I'm doing it. It's your wife who's having the problem with reconciliation? Not necessarily. Of the checkbook. <laughs> <laughs> who's the one who's screwing up the checkbook? Well, I mean, if you, you keep putting it off, though, I mean, there may not be anything wrong, but if you put it off for a couple of months, reconciling two months worth of checkbook. So who's the one who's likely to get on the other one about the checkbook? I'm likely to get on her. You're likely to get on her about this. How come you ain't been able to teach her how to do that? I don't know. Why can't you learn his way of doing the checkbook? Because I just have my own ideas. You have your own ideas about it. That's the trouble with this woman's woman. It gives these women the idea that they're equal. 
and it makes it very difficult. <laughs> what would um, what would you like him to do with um, with this checkbook thing? Just handle it. Just handle it. You want him to take it over? I don't want to have to. I don't like messing with the checkbook. What would you say to that? That's fine if I had the checkbook all the time, but I don't. She keeps it, but she wants you to handle it. Mm -hmm. How are you going to work that out? I don't know. Probably. I don't know. You could have two checks. That's true. Would that help him? No, that's, that's caused problems in the past. About, uh, one person not knowing what the other person's doing with their checkbook. What goes through you when your husband gets on you about the check? Mm, fear. I start feeling fear. Fear. Uh huh. And little um, inadequate. Did you know you could make her feel inadequate like that? I, yes, I do. You do. What gives him so much power over you? Probably me. You give him the power. I probably, yes. And what would it take for you to get it back? Mm. Not to buy into the, the checkbook issue, to take responsibility for my part in it. If you know that's what you're supposed to do, what keeps you from doing it? I just don't like messing with it. I don't like being responsible for Figuring it out. No, 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 that's what I mean. If you know that you've got to take yourself back from him, mm -hmm. what makes it so difficult? If you know it, what makes it so difficult to do it? Mm 